Welcome back to Radio Rothbard. I'm Ryan McMakin, executive editor with the Mises Institute. And with me, as always, is my co-host, Tho Bishop. But also joining us this week is Tom DiLorenzo. Now, of course, if you've been paying attention to the Mises Institute at all for the last 25 years, you're very well aware of who Tom DiLorenzo is. Well, in more than 25 years, it's just I've only been paying attention for the last 25 years. And so I've known uh, of Tom uh, since the 90s, certainly. And Tom DiLorenzo is now the new president of the Mises Institute. And so we're, we're hoping he'll do that for a while. And uh, we're having him on, not to talk about really just uh, that new development, uh, although I'm sure as he, he comes on board full-time, we'll be able to talk more about those sorts of things. But we're going to talk about his talk from this year's Supporter Summit uh, that recently wrapped up uh, at our Auburn campus. And the theme this year at the Supporter Summit was uh, the decline of the dollar. And uh, is the end of the dollar coming how should we view that historically and uh, what for in terms of what the future holds for the dollar? Now, this was a wide variety of talk, talks covering a variety of topics. Tom, uh, we asked to cover the to some extent the nexus between foreign policy and the dollar. And uh, Tom gave us a talk uh, which we will post a written version of this on our site. So you'll be able to click on that in the uh, in the description of this podcast, but also it should be still on the front page by the time this podcast posts. And uh, this is on the topic of false virtue, the life and death of American exceptionalism. And this really looks at the moral basis behind what, uh, what the United States has done with its dollar hegemony uh, in the foreign policy realm. So welcome, Tom, and uh, thank you for joining us. And I think I just want to get you going by uh, looking at a quote that you include at the beginning of your talk. And uh, you note that uh, we're not the only people who are paying attention to this issue, but the Council on Foreign Relations uh, recently included uh, an article on the future of dollar, dollar hegemony and noted with some alarm that uh, dollar hegemony, if, if it, it does not persist, would not have the same ability to impose sanctions as a foreign policy tool uh, on the world. And so in addition to just funding the federal government, we also note that, that uh, the use of the dollar as a bludgeon against other countries for, for sanctions, for controlling how they can participate in the financial system is another big issue as well. So maybe you can just start off by talking, uh, telling us a little bit about uh, your view of how the dollar fits into this and how this is justified by American views of its own role in foreign policy. Well, yeah, I, I quoted the uh, Council on Foreign Relations of all people. And uh, one of the things they said in this article from August 22nd of this year was, uh, quote, U.S. sanctions do ensure that targeted adversaries pay a significant price for continuing to engage in actions the United States opposes, end quote. And then I said, it reminds me of a bumper sticker that I saw a couple years ago. 
It had an American flag in one corner, and then the caption said, do as we say, or we will bring democracy to your country, meaning the military, bring the military to your country. But short of bringing the military to your country, you know, we can destroy your economy, or at least cripple your economy, because if you uh, rely on the dollar uh, to a very significant degree, because we can order the banks to, uh, to interfere with the transfer of dollars. And, uh, and you, uh, Ryan, you wrote the, uh, an excellent article, of, what is it, a week or two ago about what happened in Panama in the late 80s about how they crippled the Panamanian economy because they wanted to get rid of Manuel Noriega, who was no longer obeying all the orders from his uh, American masters. And so that's the sort of thing that happens. And then I make the point that, you know, we, we use this, sanctions, and, and, I, and, and by the way, this article by the Council on Foreign Relations said that more than 12,000 entities were under sanction at the current time by the Treasury Department. They don't define what an entity is, but it's countries, corporations, individuals, entities of all kinds, and that's foreign policy. And so, uh, and I make the point that we, we've been, for a long time, we've been the bully of the world and sanctions and the, and the dollar hegemony have been the tools of the bully of the world. And that's why the Council on Foreign Relations is so alarmed about the decline of the dollar. And then the second point I make was that well, you can't just go around and saying, well, we're going to bully you because we want to steal your resources or, or something like that. We want to force you to pay triple for uh, to American corporations for some crappy... Uh, old tractor that they can't sell to anybody else or, or whatever. You have to think of some humanitarian uh, uh, purpose, uh, some great moral purpose, and you have to repeat it over and over and over again so that uh, hopefully there's not too much opposition to what you're doing. And and that's the role of what I call, uh, you know, um, American exceptionalism, and it started out as what I uh, quote Robert Penn Warren, the famous novelist, uh, author of All the King's Men, among many other great, great works of uh, literature. And I wrote a book in 1961 called The Legacy of the Civil War. And he explains how the Republican Party, and with the help of the New England clergy, interestingly, uh, deified not just Lincoln, but the whole federal government, basically, claimed that the, the war proved that the government had a treasury of virtue. Uh, it was so much so that anything the government did was virtuous by virtue of the fact that it was the U.S. government doing it. And so that's, for a long, long time, for many decades, that's been sort of the moral cover of all this. And, and the decline of the dollar yeah, is, is very alarming to them because, as I said, sanctions are a tool that they use and they hide behind this sanctimonious theory of American exceptionalism. Yeah, I, it's very remarkable to go back to that time period, too, because I do think that it is relevant uh, to look at the second half of the 19th century and see just how much things changed in terms of the view of the American uh, military, uh, the view of the U.S.'s role in the world. And you can see that it took a while to ramp up, um, that 
certainly the war jump-started that sort of thinking in a variety of ways, not just in terms of, hey, the federal government does uh, accomplishes great moral works now. Uh, whereas there, I think it was, while there was always that element there, I think one of the... <laughs> One of the great lines that Lou Rockwell ever uttered was, this was years ago, uh, certainly more than 10, where I was interviewing Lou on a, a topic of uh, American history. And we were talking about going way back to the Puritans uh, and New England and King Philip's War and that sort of thing. And just the whole city on a hill philosophy that had dominated American history for so long. And uh, I said, yeah, this, this, <laughs> this goes way back to the beginning. And Lou's phrase was, yeah, it's screwed up from the beginning, kind of meaning the, the American yeah. project, right? <laughs> because yeah. there was always that strain of thought that, hey, we're, we're here to accomplish uh, great moral works. The American government is not just this instrumental thing where, hey, it paves some roads or provides national defense. It's, it's much broader than that. And I think you see that really start to take off uh, at the end of the 19th century. But it's not, it's not just the, the growth of that moral vision, um, and by which I, when I say it moral, uh, well, I suppose maybe I should call it a moralistic vision. Uh, to call it a moral vision might imply that I agree with it. Uh, would, uh, you can see then that this also is the period where the federal government starts to figure out new and interesting ways to manipulate the money supply and enrich itself, right? Because it's the Civil War is the first time since the Revolution, at least, when they just started printing the, uh, the Continentals, that what do we have? The greenback, uh, we have the income tax, all of that's introduced where basically the federal government is driven by the needs of the war to come up with all sorts of inventive new ways to uh, increase its own revenue. And so once you start to develop those tools, I suppose, then you've got a lot more power, and then you need to man manufacture reasons uh, as well uh, to, uh, to, to support use of those federal powers. Um, and this is something that, you know, there's always that dichotomy, right? I mean, Tom, what would you say, so after the war, you've got all these people who are, who are going off on this moral vision of the United States as something new now. Uh, this all really perhaps culminates in the Spanish-American War with William Graham Sumner saying that it, Spain had conquered the United States essentially because the United States had abandoned its, its vision of, uh, of truly limited foreign policy and limited government with its conquest of, of the Philippines and uh, Puerto Rico and all of that. But what would you, would you say that the people who talk about all this city on the hill, moral vision stuff, uh, treasury of virtue, wh how many of them are true believers and how many of them were really just trying to justify the usual um, imperialistic impulses that people in powerful governments have? Yeah, well, there might be some naive academics who actually believe it. But uh, uh, when Newt Gingrich, for example, when he, when he, he wrote, published an article in the Wall Street Journal uh, during the Bush administration, and, uh, and, he, and he, he, want, he advocated an invasion, a military invasion of uh, uh, Iran, uh, was it Iran, Libya, maybe even Saudi Arabia, I think three or four 
Middle Eastern countries at the same time. And the title of the article was Lincoln and Bush. And so he invoked, you know, the, the treasury of virtue that Robert Penn Warren t wrote about of the Lincoln legacy to, uh, to say that, well, Lincoln would approve uh, of a military invasion of all these countries simultaneously in the Middle East. You know, and, and I wrote about that and I said, you know, Lincoln was no, not, not, not a big, such a big fool as he would have, he would have done something like that. And so he does that. And then, then you had Eric Foner, the, the uh, Marxist historian at Columbia University, who's now retired. He wrote an article in The Nation magazine in 1990 in which he opposed the breakup of the Soviet Union. And uh, he, he, called, he called it uh, Lincoln's Lesson. He said, uh, you know, Lincoln would not allow the peaceful secession of the Soviet republics like Gorbachev did. So he said, you know, the Russians need a, need a Lincoln. They don't, they got to get rid of Gorbachev and find a Lincoln. And then uh, uh, Musharraf, the, the uh, former dictator of Pakistan, when he invoked martial law in Pakistan, he quoted Lincoln. And so this, this whole idea of American exceptionalism, even foreign tyrants have tried to latch on to it and say, well, yeah, I agree with that. The Americans are exceptional and, and, and I'm exceptional too, because I agree with that. I want to do, I want to be like them. You know, I'm exceptional. I want to you know, destroy your liberties just like the American government destroys uh, Americans' liberties. And so, so yeah, so these people are cynical uh, uh, power-hungry, egomaniacal politicians and academics, for that matter. Eric Foner has always been a, uh, for example, uh, I'm the one in all my research in, on, on the Civil War. I ran across an article by him, in which he said in the in the '60s, when he was sort of in the heyday of younger in his career, he and other uh, prominent members of the history profession decided that they needed to rewrite the history of the Civil War and Reconstruction to support the Lyndon Johnson administration more. And so they, they consciously rewrote the history. And, uh, and, uh, and earlier in my research, I ran across William Archibald Dunning, who was a professor at Columbia at the turn of the 20th century. And if you want to read some good books where you can't tell whether this guy, this guy's not for either side in the Civil War, he's, he's a straight shooter as, as there ever has been in the history profession, a tremendous scholar, and he produced a lot of graduate students, PhD students at Columbia in those days, who wrote doctoral dissertations just like that. So there was at once a great literature, factual history on, on the war and Reconstruction, and Eric Foner and his, some of his left-wing colleagues were unhappy with that. They wanted uh, the American history to be more uh, spun to promote uh, the interventionism of the, the Johnson administration. And so, uh, so yeah, so there are dishonest academics like that who see themselves more as court historians or political propagandists. That's why I said there probably are some naive professors out there who actually believe this stuff. Sean Hannity probably believes it. <laughs> on the Fox News channel. He repeats it almost on every show. He uses the word American exceptionalism. And a lot of Americans do too, because uh, as I've written elsewhere, this became widely, widely accepted in the late 19th, early 20th century. And I think it's because Americans kind of, most Americans kind of like the idea of equating themselves personally 
with a government that was portrayed as being saintly, the most saintly and 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 uh, government in the world, and that's us. And uh, and so and that played into the old propaganda line too. By the way, that the government is us. And don't criticize the government because we are the government. That's always been a big left wing propaganda tool that you still hear to this day, and and a lot of Americans fell for it. And I guess the class of Americans that fell for that is what H.L. Mencken used to call bubus Americanus, to make it sound like a scientific word for, for, for a dumbass. <laughs> well, one foreign leader I could imagine uh, thinking of himself kind of in the mantle of Lincoln would be uh, Zelensky in Ukraine, um, un unwilling to, uh, to, to part with territory uh, in spite of uh, lingering cultural and, and historical disputes there with Crimea and the Donbass and the like. Um, and I, I think this this modern within the the current political sphere, I think the the lessons from Reconstruction in particular have a lot of usefulness in understanding a lot of the current progressive projects, particularly coming out of the federal level. Again, kind of tapping into you know it's the the value system of D.C. today is I think in many ways different in terms of the, the underlying religious tones that they want to portray, the, the underlying values, you know, the, the, the move to this more uh, uh, woke, secular sort of dynamic. But ultimately, the, the underlying pinning there of this sort of moral crusade against these deplorables, this, this underclass, this, this seditious class, um, you know, we've seen it play out with sort of the way the federal courts have preempted uh, election uh, kind of congressional maps within the sta state level, the extent to which um, the federal ideologies within academia have had consequences even within re relatively red areas in terms of the direction of uh, their population, their institutions and the like. And so it seems those, those reconstruction narratives of you know the, the the victorious federal government being able to come in and completely recreate tearing down established institutions, established natural hierarchies, and imposing with you know, kind of carpetbaggers and kind of the agents of the regime. This is something that I think Americans right now are feeling in their day to day lives. I think that's leading to a lot of the anxiety and the political polarization. And of course, this mirrors as well the kind of the bankruptcy of the state and the, the, the real treasure of the federal government with you know, the, the inflationary pressures and the like. And it seems that the lessons of that, that reconstruction era and again, this, this dominating aspect of the federal gov government with these cultural conflicts with still large swaths of America are still very much alive today. Yeah, sort of reminds me of, you know, our friend Bruce Yandel, the old uh, Clemson University economist, who I think he's now retired, who has spoken at the Mises Institute. He's known, and I urge your listeners to go on YouTube and look at his great talk on what he calls bootleggers and Baptists. And, he, and it's a phenomenon where he says a lot of regulations, government controls and regulations, uh, are the result of a, some sort of coalition between uh, the sort of moralists or even religious people and just plain old greedy money grub money grubbing business people. <laughs> and his first example is prohibition. The bootleggers were for prohibition for obvious reasons, because of the making liquor illegal put them in business. But they had to have some sort of moral uh, 
cover. And so the, the people for religious reasons were against alcohol were their moral cover. And so Bruce, uh, in, in his work on regulation, and he's written, you know, volumes on the economics of regulation, says this is a major part of uh, what goes on with government regulation. There always has to be some sort of moral cover for the profits. And I, and I would think that uh, the Pfizer Corporation and the whole COVID pandemic thing would be a perfect example of that, where it had this this moral fervor to it. You know, you're a, a criminal or a enemy of society if you don't take all these shots and, and, and in the meantime it's just all about making more money for Pfizer and eliminating hydroxychloroquine and ivermectin and and the other competing products and so I think that would be a good example of that and uh, and you know and you know Jeffrey Hummel wrote this book emancipating slaves enslaving free men I don't know 20 some years ago now but one of the concluding chapters he, he said one of, the, one of the effects of the Civil War is that this idea that the government had the ability to do great things, to do, uh, you know, the, all, just about anything, you know, if it wanted to. And he, he doesn't talk about this moral aspect of it that I mentioned, that you just mentioned. But, yeah, you combine that belief that the government can centrally plan just about anything and you add uh, a moral component to it. That's a powerful engine of statism you've got there. And, uh, and that's, of course, is one of the reasons why I've been criticizing it as much as I can. And I think uh, I'd like other people to join on the bandwagon because that's, that really is the cornerstone of a lot of uh, the American empire, and, uh, and that, which is why the Council on Foreign Relations is so panicked, apparently, about the possible impending decline of dollar hegemony. Well, it's, it's of course, uh, shouldn't surprise us, I suppose, that uh, the, the CFR keeps tabs very closely on the dollar and the U.S.'s ability to use it for foreign policy purposes. Uh, but they're not the only ones. And this shows also some something of that bootleggers and Baptists uh, coalition on, when it comes to uh, dollar power as well. When we look back at uh, what happened in April, uh, there was a bit of a... Uh, a dust-up uh, about uh, whether China was trying to uh, displace the dollar. Now, I don't, I don't think that's very likely, um, but China's put out there something of a boogeyman in terms of threats to the dollar system. Uh, yeah. They should probably be looking elsewhere for the real threats um, closer to home. But Larry yeah. Kudlow uh, says, uh, he says back in April, it's incumbent on the U.S. government, no matter who's in power, to, to maintain the reserve currency status of the dollar. And he was uh, somewhat echoing Trump, who was saying uh, if, the, if China displaces uh, the dollar as the number one currency, that this, quote, would be the biggest defeat for our country in its history, unquote. <laughs> Uh, well, I don't know about that. Uh, also, what's interesting, though, is that there's this, the, the bootleggers and Baptist issue comes in here because they speak of the dollar in terms of, oh, we need the dollar to be tops uh, for uh, economic reasons, to, to maintain a high standard of living uh, and for, for Americans to do well. Whereas that's not really the issue because the dollar doesn't have to be a hegemonic currency for Americans to do well. Uh, America just have sound currency that wasn't uh, the global reserve currency and Americans would be fine. It's clear. So there's that side of it. 
this practical side. But then there's the moralistic side of it uh, as well, which is that, well, the United States needs to be the number one country running the world. Uh, and th this gets us back to the late 19th century thinking again, is we're, we're the best country, we're the most moral country, we need to be in charge so we can never lose our reserve currency status. And uh, so it, there is an awareness there of, of the importance of it and how instrumental it is to uh, this idea of the American project. And you can see also, I think, people who are uh, Trump I'm, and Kudlow, I'm sure, know nothing about it. But you could see how the U.S. displaced, say, the British Empire. Now, the British had their own moralistic view. It was a little more practical. Americans are really more over the top in terms of uh, God commanding them to do everything. Uh, but the British, nevertheless, saw themselves as spreading civilization around the world, and they benefited immensely from the sterling being uh, the global reserve currency. And it didn't really lose that position until 1955, when the Americans really started taking it over. And I think then you, from 45 to 55, you saw Americans really start to see their chance to take over this global uh, role from the British and to really step up and finally implement that global vision that they had been formulating since uh, the late 19th century. And we've been there ever since, it seems, that, uh, yeah. okay, the British went into decline, America now has displaced that, we've got Pax Americana, we're in charge, and we can never, ever give that up or be a great moral defeat for the whole world and we'll all be worse off. And uh, yeah, it's not just the CFR, but apparently Trump believes it could allow, and probably any American protectionist, nationalist that you could think of probably on some level agrees with that same vision. Yeah, Trump. Trump is wrong about that, of course. But I mean, it, it, it wouldn't be the uh, the greatest de defeat for America if we lost dollar hegemony. It would be the greatest defeat for the deep state, which has tried to destroy destroy Donald Trump for the past eight years. And so, he's actually defending his his uh, mortal enemies, politically speaking. And, uh, and when when he says that, it's it's their tool. It's their tool. For for military and foreign policy hegemony, and uh, he's supposed to be against that, you know. He then he say, "I want to bring the troops home and end all these wars and so forth," which is why they hate him so much. But uh, he'd be shooting himself in the foot. He needs to get a different advisor than uh, Larry Kudlow. <laughs> <laughs> Well, and, and I, I, there was some talk at the at the conference um, about what is the time frame here, um, and I'll just this will be pure speculation on all of our parts. But uh, when Jeffrey Herbiner gave up and uh, he went up and he he gave his talk, and uh, he didn't really see that the dollar was. Uh, at its imminent, that the end of the dollar was imminent, that there were certainly trends in place, and clearly the decline of the dollar is a threat to the regime, but it seems we're really slow walking that process right now. And I know here on this talk, we are on here on Raider Rothbard, we, we've cautioned against thinking that uh, the dollar is just about to go away the day after tomorrow. But what's your own view on that? I mean, what do you think has to happen before the dollar to really go away? And I and you know, just speculating. What what do you think the time frame for that potentially could be? Well, never underestimate the ability of other governments to destroy their currencies. You know, if we're, if we're comparing the dollar to the China and Japan and other countries, don't forget they have they have government is government. 
and and they have they have and central banks are central banks, and so we're 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 competing. You know, the dollar competes with with those currencies, so that's what makes it so impossible to um, to forecast you know, what's what's going to happen. And I think I think it is an impossibility. That's why Jeff Herbener, uh, you know, he gave a very scholarly uh, and systematic talk on the topic, but he can't forecast it either, as far as that goes. So, uh, so I'm not willing to say, oh, you you wait ten years or twenty years because we don't know what other governments are going to do. China could implode; their economy could implode, and and so they'd be out of the out of, out of the running for that. And uh, so, and I'm not that much of a student of uh, what the other uh, governments uh, would be. And then there's the whole uh, Bitcoin issue and uh, alternative current currencies to to talk about, as far as that goes. All right. Well, we'll go ahead and wrap up with that then on this episode of Radio Rothbard. I want to thank my guest, Tom D. Lorenzo, the new president of the Mises Institute, for joining us here this week. Uh, Thank you for listening, everyone. We'll be back next week with another episode, and we'll see you next time. 